At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to GDN's Talking Comics interview. On today's show, we welcome iconic writer Fabian Nasiaiza. Fabian was the co-creator of Marvel's Deadpool along with artist Rob Liefeld. In addition, he has written for Marvel, DC, Acclaim, and more. Recently, he released two satirical crime novels by J.P. Putnam's Sons, Suburban Dicks, and The Self-Made Widow. Now, here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome once again to GBN's Talking Comics Interview. I am your host, Martin, and today I have the pleasure of talking to one of the iconic voices in comic writing, Fabian Nicieza. Fabian is most well-known as the co-creator, along with artist Rob Liefeld, of Deadpool, with the character recently celebrating its 30th anniversary. But Fabian has done so much more. Besides writing for both Marvel and DC in his career, he has also done books for multiple other publishers. But recently... Fabian has expanded his portfolio even more with his first two mystery novels. The first, Suburban Dicks, was extremely well accepted and was nominated for a 2022 Edgar and Seamus Awards for Best First Novel and Best First P.I. Novel. He has since followed that up with his new book, The Self-Made Widow. So we're going to talk to Fabian about his career, his successful comic book writing, and of course his two crime drama novels, both set in the paradise that is New Jersey. So let's welcome Fabian Nicieza to GVN's Talking Comics. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us, Fabian. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Martin. How are you? I'm doing good. Okay. Okay, so let's delve a little bit into your beginnings. You started with Marvel as an advertising manager in the promotional department. Before you started doing freelance writing for the company, did you take that position to get your feet in the door for writing assignments? Yes, yes and no. Um, I, I had no illusions that it wouldn't give me a better opportunity to have the chance to write by being in the office, but I, I took it because I wanted a job that was going to pay me more than the job I currently had at, at Berkeley Publishing, uh, because when you're in entry-level publishing, the pay is not very good. So if you can get a three or $4,000 a year <laughs> increase, you take it. Um, but, but also because I, I, I was gonna. I, I wanted to have an opportunity to 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 do what I went to school for, which was communications, public relations, and advertising. And doing it at Marvel would be like a great convergence of two things that I really like to do, uh, which is you know developing ads and writing ad copy and things like that, uh, uh, along with working at the comics. Um, so of course I wanted an opportunity to write, but um, I, I also did something I rarely do, which was I was patient. I bided my time. I, I didn't even try to sell my first story until I was there for pretty much well over a year. Um, there's there's many tales told of the person who tries dropping their 400-page multi-part magnum opus on an editor's desk the first day they work there. And, uh, and the minute they leave that office, that entire 400-page magnum opus gets pushed right into the round <laughs> file. Um, and and I did not want to 
I did not want to be that. So uh, I, I just took my time, got to know the editors, got to know who was looking for what, and, and started to try to mm -hmm. sell my stories that way. But all of it was in context to back then. It was just a little extra side money. Freelance writing for the first few years was just extra side money to, to, help, um, to help pad my salary. Uh, my wife and I were trying to save to have enough to buy like a townhouse or a, uh, so, so that was really the main impetus. It, 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 it initially wasn't like, I want to be a freelance writer. Um, so, so that, you know, that I was on staff at Marvel for 10 years. So I did, I did the bulk of my, my, um, the writing that I'm most known for. I did the bulk of it, you know, while I was on staff still. Okay. So uh, I recently read Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by uh, Sean Howe, and you were mentioned prominently in the late 80s, late 90s, which basically means you can't tell the history of Marvel without Fabian Nicieza. Uh, but uh, I also, I didn't realize at the time, you know, because I've been following comics from the, since the 70s, but from the outside looking in, I didn't realize all the politics and fighting that went on, uh, that was involved in it. Uh, in your experience, is that norm for the comic business or was that just that isolated incident? No, I think it, I think it was norm for the comic business. Certainly, um, certainly to the to the best of my understanding, from the people who preceded me, who told me stories about it, it, it that that kind of politicking and infighting and 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 differences of opinion between upper management and and and, and, and creative personnel or editorial really percolated a lot in the seventies. I think before that there was a little more of a kind of a draconian rule of law. Uh, the the freelancer did what the editor asked them to do because that's how they got work. So DC had a little bit more of a rigid editorial structure. Marvel's editorial structure was a little looser, but make no make no mistake, Stan Lee was the boss, and everyone knew that you wanted to get work from Stan, and you you had to make sure that that you didn't go against the boss too much. And that's the but that's no different than any other company. Right. Um, I think it got a little crazier in the 70s because you had multiple writer editors, you had multiple changes of of staffing positions at Marvel. Um, there was a lot of drugs prevalent in the 70s and a lot of the creative personnel <laughs> partook of them. Um, I, I think that had a lot to do with the productivity issues that they had and their 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 lack of ability to get on the production cycle that, that was of a professional standard. Um, and, and I think Jim Shooter's taking over at Marvel. Archie Goodwin, I'm sure, tried desperately to make it a professional organization. <laughs> but Jim Shooter, who's who's a little more draconian in his style, uh, managed to really change the, the the structure, the internal structure of the editorial department so that it manifested itself externally as a much more professionally run organization. So I got there at 85, which is fascinating because it was a few years after Jim's best work had already been done in-house to remake the organization of the company uh, editorially anyway and and in production standpoint. um so so i got there at the tail end of shooters uh, shooters tenure as editor-in-chief so I, I i endured the worst of what jim went through with editorial rather than the best of writing. Okay. Um, so now, of course, I said I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Deadpool, which, of course, he just celebrated his 30th anniversary. Uh, and I'm sure if I were to ask Rob, uh, which actually I asked, I talked to him last year about, did you think Deadpool would be still pertinent 30 years later? He would have said yes. Did you have any idea? Yeah, that absolutely. Yes, oh, <laughs> right. he, he was 
the, the, there's a difference between saying, do you think he'd be pertinent? Do you think he'd, he'd be starring in a billion and a half dollar movie franchise with a, you know, a hundred million dollars plus or a billion dollars, whatever of, of licensing revenue. Um, uh, we knew right away that, that the, the readers kind of were attracted to this character. They liked his look, they liked his voice, they liked, they liked something about him right from the very beginning. And the simplest way to, to understand that is if we didn't feel right off the bat that he had clicked with readers, why wouldn't we have ever have made him one of the five trading cards that got blown into X-Force number one, which came out just six months or so after New Mutants 98 came out? That, that, that's a pretty short lead time to, 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 to make that kind of decision, and we decided to do that because we thought right away, based on reader reaction and the sales of New Mutants flowing into X-Force Based on all of that, we thought there's something here. Let's see if we can if we can keep managing. Um, so yeah, did I think that some plucky Canadian boy would one day star <laughs> as the character in a movie? No, but but if you had told me in 1992 that in two, in, in 2022 there'll be Deadpool comics or he'll be appearing in books still regularly, I wouldn't have been surprised in the least. All right. Um, so, okay, I mentioned Rob Liefeld, uh, and he's still, even now, he's still a polarizing figure for fans. Some fans love him, some fans hate him. Rob really doesn't care, and and I and I respect that. Uh, but uh, and of course, I like I said, I interviewed him last year, and he was nothing but pleasant to me. With which we spent most of our time talking about uh, Neil Adams and John Buscema and things like that. But uh, say, with the 30th anniversary of Deadpool, have you have you talked to Rob? recently i haven't spoken to rob in a few years and i don't plan to speak to rob for several more years to come <laughs> okay. there are many there are many words that have to come out of his mouth first before i bother to to talk to him so i would prefer just moving right along all right very good okay so like i said now that you're a famous author and uh you've done comic cons you've done book signings so what's basically the difference between them uh as far as your interaction with the fans <laughs> Book signings are far more sedate and <laughs> and polite, um, and, and book signings at stores are far 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 smaller and less attended than, than comic conventions are. Um, co comic conventions are are are, are mass audience uh, draws, and bookstore signings are small audience draws. Um, and, and I haven't done enough book signings to be able to to really gauge it one way or the other. But for where I'm at, as far as my my "Quote unquote career as a as a book author, it, it's still too way way too early for me to be able to compare the two because at comic conventions I'm signing all day long usually, and I at bigger shows I have lines all day long, um, and, and bookstore appearances are very micromanaged and smaller. I say, well, so in the bookstore signings, I mean, how much is it basically you get the book, you sign the book, maybe say hello, whatever, and then just move on to the next person? Or, uh, well, yeah, they... just, it's, it's a little bit of an interview Q&A thing. There are not many. I've only done a few bookstore signings because we had COVID last year when the first yes. book came out, and I didn't feel comfortable doing them. This year, I just did three bookstore signings, and they're very small events because... I'm not an author yet that's going to draw a bigger crowd. If, if, if Suburban Dicks had a TV show on air or something like that, it might get more people. But, but you know, the book is going to draw 10, 20 people to come to a store signing. And most of it's a Q&A session. And it's very enjoyable, very pleasant. The people who are there are, are intelligent and, 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 and have <laughs> usually read the books and, and, um, and, and want to interact and, and discuss the book. 
but but comic conventions I've been doing for 35 years and, and it's kind of a bread and butter in terms of understanding how, how to interact with fans at, at the shows. All right. Okay. So, so talking about your books, the bourbon dicks and the self-made widow, uh, who first approached you about the possibility of, of writing a book? Uh, well, considering that I had the idea for Suburban Dicks in 1995 and I had the sequel <laughs> to Suburban Dicks sometime in 1996-97, um, I've I, I wanted to write the books for a very, very long time. Uh, I, I just never felt comfortable with what I was doing. Um, I, I just, anytime I tried to write prose, whether it was starting Suburban Dicks, which I tried a few times, or whether it was any other kind of prose writing I tried to do. For the most part, I just wasn't satisfied with what I wrote. And because it wasn't paying the bills uh, at the time that I was doing it, I would easily shunt it aside. It was very easy to, to, to throw the, the, the document file into the, into the trash folder on the laptop. Um, so several, several attempts got thrown away. Um, and, and in late 2017, uh, a lot of my contemporaries had been selling um, novels and, and I just looked in the mirror and said, if I don't try to do one now, when am I going to do it? Um, I'd had a couple of good, good years, run, you know, from the, from the standpoint of, of my freelance work and, um, and the bills were starting to reduce a little bit because the mortgage was paid off and the, the youngest son was in his last year of college uh, or getting there. So we could manage the, the overwhelming costs of college tuition and, and, and mortgages and things like that so i just decided to start start plucking away at the book uh, just give it a shot and i wrote three chapters i had a few people read it uh they all said it was pretty good keep going and it was both exactly what i needed to hear and what i dreaded to hear because that meant i had to keep going um and, and i just kept going and and, and it the first manuscript required a lot of honing and a lot of tightening um and improving. But at the end of the day, I did exactly what I accomplished. Uh, I, I accomplished exactly what I set out to do, which was write the end on a manuscript. <laughs> and, and whether it was good or not, I, I didn't feel I had much control over, but at least I got to the end. Um, and in the course of writing it, I also um, I also found a, a, a landing point for it because I, uh, an agent at UTA said that um, based on other business I was involved mm -hmm. with where I met him said he really loved the idea for the book and he'd be happy to take a look at it and have his 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 literary team take a look at it. So I was like, OK, I might get be able to get an agent <laughs> out of this. Um, and and they came back with they really liked the book a lot. There was a lot of suggestions to tighten it, improve it, cut out a lot of extemporaneous um, uh, stuff that was in it. And, and I set about going to do that. Um, and, and it was all now with the intent that if these, if these changes are to their liking, they will represent it and try to sell it, which, which makes a huge difference in trying to find the landing spot for your manuscript. Um, so they went out with it in November of 2019. Um, so it took me, took me a little over a year to write the first manuscript. And, and then I had a freelance editor give me some pointers. I, I made a bunch of cuts. That's when I, I showed it to the agent. They had some suggestions. I made a bunch of cuts. I had, I had a lot. I had over 100 pages of, of what I call garbage out of the first manuscript. Um, and, and then they went out with it in November 2019 and, and had multiple publishers wanting to buy it, which was just wonderful it was a really yes. fun roller coaster ride that, that was not expected um when when i first set out to write it 
Uh, so it was really like it was really like you know not just a cherry on top of an ice cream sundae. It was it was everything the whole sundae because all I expected was a bowl. <laughs> but but I ended up getting ice cream and whipped cream and syrup and, and cherries and everything. Um, so, uh, so so that was good and that was a two book deal. Um, with oh, oh, it was a two book deal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I finished the second manuscript. Uh, the second manuscript was a lot easier for me to write because I I had a much more greater comfort level and, and I was only focusing on that at the time I was writing it as opposed to Suburban Dicks where it was just something I was doing on the side during the whole year. Um, this self-made widow was what I focused on exclusively, and I wrote it from March to November of uh, 2020. During during the start of the pandemic, that's what I was doing. So I was just holed up in a corner of my house, typing away. Um, and, and and you know, the book just came out in June. Uh, so uh, obviously, then you know, so for someone to read, go over your manuscript and say, okay, you need to make this change, this change, this thing. You're used to that, so that kind of thing doesn't bother you. I mean, some people get their ego involved and say, no, I don't, I don't want to cut that. I don't want to cut that. That obviously wasn't a problem for you. Well, no, I, I, I'll always get my ego involved if, if I'm, if I don't agree, <laughs> or if I'm passionate about something that I don't want to, that I don't want to change. But, um, but in this particular case, uh, I'm listening to people that have more experience when I had a freelance editor reading it um, and, and I'm making changes and cuts based on her recommendations because they're valid, sound, smart recommendations. And then with my agency, they have very valid suggestions and we made some significant changes to the manuscript um, that, that, that all, all ended up being for the better. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I've been a team player for so long in the, in in everything I've done, that doesn't mean I don't bring my ego into it, or I don't have a natural arrogance about what I'm, what I'm, what I believe in. But by the same token, I I know all sides of publishing. I've done all sides <laughs> of publishing, so so I'm relatively comfortable in being able to 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 separate myself from the material um, enough so that I understand what needs to be done to make the material entertaining salient and sellable you know all right okay so in suburban decks was there certain elements in your story that you just felt that needed to be there i mean that you would stand you know stand your ground on um at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Probably, probably the, the, the setting was the single most important aspect of it for it, for it for me. Um, and, and it's funny, we ran into some issues in that capacity when we were dealing with the tv aspect of of the book um in that i think that that almost everything about the book comes out of a sense of place and, and that sense of place is suburban new jersey um suburban new jersey with access and always um uh, a, a certain uh, interweaved aspect to the cities uh new york city and philadelphia um and and i felt anything else would have robbed the book 
of its core underlying personality. Uh, it's kind of its foundational ground. It's, it would have it just put, been pouring water underground in, in order to make everything collapse from, from the weight of it. Um, so all the characters spring out of that. All the interactions spring out of that. The, the, the basic thrust of the story, which is ultimately the themes of the first book, are, are, are white fear of demographic change in, in their lives um, and, and, and white flight from demographic changes <laughs> in their lives. Um, and, and, and it would have really, I think, damaged the, 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 the narrative if we had changed that. Right. Okay. Now, there's so much to love about you know about these books, and I really love the banter between Andrea and Kenny Lee. Uh, but part of the thing I liked about them is, just like my normal friends, sometimes I think they're hilarious, and sometimes they get on my nerves. Uh, okay. And I think, and that to me, uh, really rung out as feeling very normal, uh, which I thought was a really great job. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I don't. I've written so many. Um, I've written so many characters that that. I want you to like, despite them being unlikable, you know, and, and, and I, I managed to get away with it 99% of the time. I, I feel I am, I am someone that, that you'll like, even though I'm unlikable <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and, and I always have been. So, so I, I have no qualms whatsoever about a car about a reader being disappointed in one of the characters, what they say or do, or being frustrated by what they say or do. I don't, I, I've written superheroes my entire career, but they've always been characters with feet of clay, always been characters who make mistakes. There's no, I, I don't think that any, any individual character should always be right. I don't think they should always say the right thing or do the right thing because people don't. Um, and, and I just find that I find it some far more entertaining to write for me to write characters that are unpredictable and, 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 and have, have massive flaws and know it. Um, and and the, the tragedy being that they know those flaws and struggle to try to overcome them or improve on them. Um, and, and that, that's just fun for me. I, I've, I have found it interesting that when I look at the reader ratings or reader reviews on things like Goodreads, the aggregator site, the, the, the people who give it lower grades um, tend to be readers who, who lack the um maybe maybe the ability is the right word i don't know lack the ability to empathize with a character who is flawed they they they, they get mad at them and it taints their entire opinion of the whole book and i'm thinking to myself oh i don't you know I, okay fine you're, you're welcome to your opinion especially <laughs> if you paid money to read it um you're welcome to your opinion but but i don't i don't want to read an Andrea Stern who is flawless and makes no mistakes. You know, I, I don't want to read I don't want to write a Kenny Lee who isn't just a total schmuck and <laughs> monomaniacally focused on himself. Um, and when he, when he's not focused on himself, he has to make sure everyone acknowledges that he's not focused on himself. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's more fun for me as a writer. And, and, and I, I do that because I think it's better for the reader and, and, but you know, of course it's not going to be better for all readers. Right. And like I said, and that's the thing, like I said, it it really, there's an ebb and flow to it. Like I said, there are some times where I can empathize with Andrea completely, and sometimes I'm thinking, okay, you're wrong there, but that's fine. I mean, that's yeah. that's basically humanity. Okay, so... And there's been know, a lot of mothers, there's been a lot of mothers, readers who are mothers who, 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 have, who have trouble with the fact that she's not content being a mother, that, that they somehow think that that means that I'm... I'm 
it's an I'm casting an aspersion on women or I'm casting an aspersion on mothers. Often they think I'm casting an aspersion on them individually as a reader, you know. And 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 I'm like, it's this character. It, <laughs> it should not have been a mother. It should not have been a mother, much less a mother of five. She should not. That it's totally logical that she's not happy with her place. And right. and the the real journey, the real ride is is watching her try to find a place of happiness because if she manages to do that then it's better for everyone in concerned in her life it would be better for her kids if she found a better place of happiness you know what i mean right. um so so the, to me the journey is the fun part you know? <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing you know right how people will take you know internalize things when they read it i mean i do to a point but the uh I kind of draw the line. Okay, you were talking a little bit about New Jersey, and, and there's just some small things that I found fascinating. Number one, that you were uh, you included a lot of like when people were traveling directions, telling you what road they were going in heading in New Jersey. Like I say it kind of reminded almost reminded me of the Californians because that's part of the gig where they're basically trying. Okay, I got here by coming on this road, this road, this road, and that was part of the joke. I said, was that kind of just more of a homage to the area where, where you were kind of specific about you know what roads there are on. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm writing where I live, so I, I, I'm writing the roads that they're on, the, the stores they're going to are real stores. I, almost everything in the book is a real geographic location. Anything that happens inside that location is fiction, but the malls are real, the restaurants are real, the, the, the roads are all real, the, the, the train commute is all real, the train station's right here, and it's like the second largest train station in the and it's filled with commuters who commute into New York or into Newark or into Jersey City. So it, it, it's, a, it's an active aspect that, that kind of um, colors the totality of everything around here, you know. Okay, so, you know, we were talking about the characters, and one of the things that kind of stuck with me, and I want to discuss, hoping I'm not giving out too much information here, is we're talking about Andrea's, you know, struggle, because, you know, she wasn't happy because she had now five children, and she had a career that she obviously was going to be great at, but she ended up having to set it to the side because of all of her children, and she kind of blamed Jeff, her husband, uh, and she certainly had his part of the blame but I thought it was really interesting in the second book where you kind of delved into that but from Jeff's point of view about what he thought you know you act like I'm the only one who caused this problem that we were both of this together which I thought was fascinating because you were basically reading my mind after reading the first book uh so I thought that was actually uh exceptional and was that something that you as you said because you were working on the self-made widow right you know right in conjunction with uh, suburban dicks was that something you had in mind at that time yeah, the um, the if I get a chance to write a third book, which is still up in the air, if I get a chance to write a third book, it it really goes a long way towards um towards coming coming full circle on 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 her marriage, her her decisions, the choices she's made. Of course, Jeff has very valid points in that second book, um, because it, it, the choices we make in a marriage are almost never done by one person it's almost right. always a two-way the two-way street right um and and there are reasons for the conscious and, and subconscious choices that andrea has made some of which she's well aware of others she hasn't even fully realized yet uh she would fully realize most of that through the course of the book which would open her up to a whole world of new possibilities by the fourth book because she needs to she needs to settle a lot of things about 
her life, her childhood, her upbringing, um, and her own failures or or perceived failures uh, in order to reconcile a lot of the choices she's made. And since the third book would be the story would be the the investigation of the murder of her brother when she was eight years old and he was eleven uh, that never got solved. Oh. Here's the here's the genius here's the genius criminologist who's never <laughs> been able to solve the murder of her brother who, who was killed just feet away from her. Um, um, and, and that really it, it helps her come full circle on a lot of aspects of her life and her, and her parents and, and her upbringing that, that would, they, in essence, would open the doors to very new possibilities for her. So, I mean, have you have you started putting any work into that? I, 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 have, a, I have a rough outline for pretty much the entire thing. I, I have a, a, a tight chapter outline up through the middle of Act 2, and then I slowed down and stopped because there was no contract to do it. So I, I, without a contract to do the book, I, I don't know yet whether uh, I'm, I'm ready to just write a manuscript without a landing place. Right. <laughs> if Putnam doesn't want to do more, it's hard to find a landing place for, for what would be what could be considered the third book in a series um but the other side of the coin is if i can do it and, and if it's not with putnam i could always write it in a way that it feels like it's the first book of a new series you know um for whatever publisher might be interested i, I just don't know yet well so i'm hoping that it comes to fruition because uh, uh i'm kind of uh connected to these characters now. I appreciate okay, so, it. I, yeah. I hope it comes to fruition because I really enjoy doing it. It's fun. Right. Okay, <laughs> so uh, and one of the things that you put in your book, which I, to me, it thinks for crime novels, especially even going back to Mickey Spillane and stuff, are the similes. Uh, you do some you do some great uh, similes in the book. Uh, uh, and, you know, for example, uh, let me see, I had to write these down. Uh, like, in the very beginning of the book, where she's holding her daughter away because she's getting ready to pee, <laughs> so she's like Rafiki holding Simba in front of a fawning kingdom. I said, uh, I thought these were great. I said, Do these ones you come up as you're written, or are these ones that you've used previously and you decided this is a good time to dust this one off? Um, probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm, I, I'm consciously aware of not overdoing it or trying to overdo it because when I'm a reader and I read too much of that, it gets a little annoying. Um, so so I'm not a good judge of whether I did overdo it or not. Uh, that's a that's a reader's thing. My editor should should like smack me if I overdo it. Um, most of them, like like the Rafiki thing, is it, it, that that had been in my brain for a really long time, uh, which is ironic because the original manuscript went through multiple copy editing editing phases with it saying um musafa holding <laughs> holding simba and it was always rafiki holding simba and i knew that in my brain but i wrote i wrote <laughs> mufasa in the manuscript and it, it it literally was one of the one of the last round catches in the copy editing phase where we realized <laughs> wait a minute this is the copy editor goes it's rafiki holding simba and I was like, of course i knew that I, um so, so that 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 image was in my head for a very long time because i just thought of, of her holding the baby out and uh, you know the toddler and the toddler peeing. uh i'm gonna mention one other because this was my wife's favorite uh smelled like a taco bell had relieved its bowels inside another taco bell uh of course she you know, having children, she she uh, uh, related to that greatly. <laughs> I I well, two things. Number one, that that line even warranted a note from my editor 
saying, <laughs> just saying seriously. I think he said seriously, question mark. I mean, he wasn't going to change it or ask me to change it, but he just, I think he was, he was a little stunned by that one. Um, the, the second one is I have to apologize to Taco Bell because I honestly have never eaten Taco Bell in my entire life. Um, I really haven't. I stopped being a fast food guy a long, long time ago, and I'd never been to a Taco Bell even before that. Um, and, and, and I'm sure I'm missing out on some scrumptilicious food. Um, so I have to apologize, Taco Bell, for using them when I don't even have any empirical evidence to back or support what I'm saying. Um, it just sounded right to me. That's all. <laughs> Apparently they didn't have a problem. At least they haven't contacted you yet. Anyway, uh, I also oh, a lawsuit said, would be right. great. I mean, a lawsuit would just drive attention to the book. Let's go, baby. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, and just kind of in throwaway lines, some of the my favorite lines were actually from Andrea's daughter Ruth. Uh, and one of these, because to me this was my kind of humor, and that was she was talking about she was going to be interviewing uh, Molly's son Henry in the second book, and said so she was concerned about giving him the third degree, but she was wondering what the other two degrees were. So that's that's the kind of line I would have said. I think I I, I wrote that one spont spontaneously because. Number one, I'm not sure what the first two degrees are. And number two, I put myself in the mind of a sixth grader using these old fashioned cliches that that even I'm 60 years old and I don't even know why it's the third degree. <laughs> so so what, what's a 12 year old going to think, you know? Um, so that it just it, that one was actually kind of spontaneous. It was very natural. It just flowed right out of me because I was I was trying to be in her head in the moment from the from the from the viewpoint of, of the narrative, the narrative voice, uh, my, my narrative voice is, is, is snarky third person omniscient, but, but I, I lean it, I lean it into the thoughts of the individual characters. So the snarky third person omniscience comes out <laughs> of the individual's head during that scene. Yeah, I said. Well, she also Andrea told her that a good investigator needed to roll with the punches. She was wondering why she'd be getting punched. <laughs> why said, would she? Be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why would she be? Getting <laughs> you know, look. If you're if you're 12 years old, aren't these logical questions you'd be asking yourself? <laughs> they make no sense. <laughs> I said, okay. So that's pretty much what I got for you, uh, Fabian. But uh, you know, I, I will tell my followers to say if you want to read entertaining whodunit novels with a great mix of Fabian Nice's uh, satirical wit be sure to check out suburban dicks and the self-made widow which are can be found where great books are sold and also sold by uh jp putnam sons but before i let you go i want to give you a chance to promote anything else you got going on at the moment and where can folks follow you uh on social media uh, on social media they can usually follow me on twitter at fabian Nicieza, or on instagram f Nicieza. um you can reach me anytime you want through dms on twitter or um or through my website, which is FabianNiciesa.com. Uh, hopefully one day it will be the most misspelled URL on the planet. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am I'm working on a bunch of stuff right now that, that won't happen until 2023, so I can't talk too much about it. I do have a short story coming out in a Marvel comic in September uh, called Marvel Comunidades. Uh, it's an anthology book, and I'll have a Nova story in it. Um, Sam Alexander Nova story in it. Um, uh, I'm working on some non-comic stuff this year, uh, non-books, non-comic stuff. Uh, I'm finishing up a short story right now for my friend Bob Greenberger, uh, who is editing uh, an anthology uh, pulp 
book called Thrilling Adventure Yarns 2022. It just had its Kickstarter, and I was like a stretch goal. You're right, I saw that. Uh, so my, <laughs> my short story made it to the stretch goal, so I so then I have to write it. So I was like, darn, now I got to write it. Bob had, Bob had asked me months ago, and, and when he broke down the original schedule, I wasn't going to be able to do it because I had this non-comics, non-book thing I, I, I was going to be doing for the first half of this year. Uh, but then that dragged on a little. So I found myself having time and, and desire to do it. So I'm actually finishing up the first draft of the story today or tomorrow. Um, and I have an image comic coming out next year with Kurt Busick. Uh, it's called uh, Free Agents. The art will be by Stephen Mooney. Uh, it, it, it'll be part of this little Busick verse that they're doing at Image. Um, and, and I'm co-writing it with Kurt. And it, I don't have a I don't have a release date yet because we want to get the first arc in the can before we even release it uh so the first issue is being drawn now so i'm hopeful that it'll come out uh sometime late uh 2023 uh so so that'll be fun too very good well i appreciate it fabian and uh, we'll be following uh all all your works very closely and hopefully talk to you again down the line real soon i do too martin thank you very much for the time i appreciate all right i appreciate it Thank you for listening to GVN's Talking Comics. Please come back again. Talking Comics is a production of Geek Vibes Nation. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.